You can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. You know, we're getting close to holiday season. And uh, when it gets close to holiday season, we think about food. Amen? So, if you've looked in your bulletins today, the topic of the sermon is fasting. And so my goal is to get you really, really hungry and then talk about not eating. Think of right now, I want you to participate with me. Think right now of the number one food that you like during the holiday season. Thanksgiving or... Christmas, New Year's. Notice how there, there are traditional foods that you have for each holiday. You know, I like to think the holiday season begins with deer steak and then goes all the way through, but I know deer, deer season is not a holiday. But there's lots of traditional foods that come along. You think of turkey and dressing. You think some of you may still do uh, black-eyed peas um, around New Year's Eve. Deviled eggs. Of course, we eat deviled eggs all the time around here. But they're those foods. What's your favorite? Mom's pumpkin pie or pecan pie. Don't you think of it. You got it? Have you got it in your head? Your number one food. Okay. Have you done it? Some of you are like, no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not awake yet. Food's important to us. It's very important. You want a powerful image of what the call is doing. I want you to think about children being around a family table at Christmas, eating food, being enjoyed by their family, and enjoying their family. A lot of kids don't have anything like that. The call is making it possible, facilitating by the grace of God to make that kind of life possible for children. Food's important for us. Food is a tremendous blessing you and I know that we take food way out of proportion today. We have entire channels devoted to food. People struggle with different food problems, food-related problems. But God has given us food. God designed our taste buds. And food can be a tremendous blessing. It can be a tremendous joy. It can be the centerpiece of family life and interaction. We observe a thing called the Lord's Supper. In the book of Revelation... It speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb, where Jesus will eat and drink with us. And so food is important to God. And it can be a tremendous blessing for us when we do it right. But that's why it's so important. Because food is so central to our lives and, and so important to us, that it's so important for us to understand when Jesus says to the crowd who is listening to him, I am the bread of life. And when he revealed to the woman at the well that he is the one who gives us living water. For the Christian, we know the truth that rain or shine, feast or famine, good time, bad time, it's Jesus who sustains us. Amen? It is Jesus who we need more than anything. Even more than our necessary food. 
And that brings us today to the mysterious, interesting, ignored topic of Christian fasting. I don't have a PowerPoint this morning, so I encourage you to take notes. We're just going to go over some, some basic truths that the Bible speaks about fasting, and, and I want to try to, to give some, some insight there. Because the Bible does speak about this thing called fasting. The Bible and Christian history, even up to today, is, up to today is full of fasting and those who fasted. When Jesus was a baby, we sometimes hear this story around Christmas time. We hear the story of Anna, the prophetess who was in the temple. And it says in Luke chapter 2, it says there was a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about Him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And so she had fasted and prayed And God allowed her to see the baby Jesus, the redemption of Israel, and she is filled with thanksgiving. We have tremendous examples like Anna of fasting in the Bible and all throughout Christian history. And whereas the Bible gives no explicit command for us to fast, does give some guidelines, but what we do know is that Jesus clearly expected it to be a part of the lives of His disciples. Look, with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 2. In verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come, when the bridegroom, that's Jesus, is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Now, knowing Christian culture in the South, and even my own track record, we're kind of inexperienced with fasting. Maybe some of you have a little more experience. Fasting in the South, where we love our food. You know, I I fear preaching about fasting in a Baptist church is like preaching against alcohol at the bar. It's 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 it is not friendly territory. We are not preaching to the choir here. We are we are not familiar by and large with this concept of fasting. And yet Jesus expected us to fast. So how do we reconcile this? Well, that's what we're talking about this morning. The concept of fasting is even embedded into our word breakfast. A word we say every day. But other than that, we aren't very familiar. But at the end of the day, we have to ask the question, if Jesus said it, if it's in His Word, and He has reasons for it, then shouldn't we learn it, learn about it, and do it for His glory? And so this morning, let's, uh, let's dive in and learn about fasting if you're new to this idea. Donald Whitney says that Christian fasting is voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. I'll show you two books real quick. If you're interested in 
and learning more about this topic. Donald Whitney has a book called, he's an Arkansan, uh, seminary professor, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. There's a fantastic chapter in here about fasting. I leaned on it um, a lot in preparing this sermon. And also, John Piper has written a book called A Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer. Both of those books will be sure to help you as you continue to, to study if you're interested. But Dr. Whitney says a, Christian's, a Christian fasting is voluntary absence from food for spiritual purposes. He says it's Christian because it's not about dieting. There's a whole host of books. People are making a lot of books and a lot of theories about how fasting makes you healthy. And I'm, I'm not going to set that aside right now. It's Christian because it's not about dieting. It has to do with God. It's voluntary because it should be a matter of the heart. Shouldn't be coerced or forced. And it's for spiritual purposes. And so if you and I practice fasting, spiritual things will happen in our lives if we're doing it according to this definition. If we are voluntarily abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. The Bible describes different types of fasts. Let me give you a few of them. First is a normal fast if you're taking notes. This is the most common in the Bible. It refers to abstaining from food but not water or drink. Jesus in the desert, it says that he abstained from food for 40 days. It does not tell us he abstained from drink. He may have, it just doesn't tell us that. But the most common in the Bible is a fast where there was abstaining from all food but not water or drink. The next is a partial fast. Daniel would be an example of this. Daniel for 10 days refused to eat the king's meat and lived off of vegetables and water. Daniel chapter 1 verse 12. Another form is called an absolute fast, where there's no water or food. Esther is an example of this, Esther and the Jews. In the book of Esther, when the Jews were facing extinction throughout all of the Persian Empire, from wicked Haman's plot, Esther is about to approach the king at risk of losing her own life, and she asks Mordecai, to rally the Jewish people throughout all the land and to fast for her for three days, eating no food and drinking no water. Moses is another example of someone who participated in an absolute fast on Mount Sinai. Having said this, one of the things that scares us about fasting, it seems like it's just kind of a mystical or a monkish or a practice of some other religion other than the Baptist church, right? Right? Well, let me tell you this, not everybody can fast, I understand that. Some of you have medical things, medical issues, and that prevents you from fasting to some degree, okay? Don't discount the fact that you can fast from something. Now, that's not biblical fasting in the Bible. In the Bible, biblical fasting deals with food. But some of you would do very well to put down the cell phone, to put down the computer, to take some time off of work, spend some time with your family. There's a number of things that you and I can fast from if we have trouble with the food aspect. However, there is a deep, intimate connection to the food, and so this can't be substituted 
completely. And so there's a spectrum. And so as we, one of the things I want to say, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you about something we're going to do later. I want you to keep this in mind. Wherever you are, just focus on taking a step forward. If we do something as a church, don't recoil because it's different. Ask yourself and pray and say, what's a step forward that I can take for the Lord? And what might he have for me in that? The Bible tells us of different occasions for fasting. The length of fasting. Fasting in the Bible ranges from an evening to a day to three days to 40 days and everywhere in between. The length of time depended on the person or the group and the occasion for fasting. So here are some occasions for fasting. One thing to keep in mind, there are both regular, in the Bible, there are both regular fasts and there are irregular or special or occasional fasts. One regular fast that is observed in the Bible is on the Day of Atonement. The Israelites would always fast for an entire day on the Day of Atonement. Every year. An example of a special or irregular fast would be in the book of Jonah. In Jonah chapter 3 verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This is one of the most amazing we forget it when we read the book of Jonah, but this is one of the most amazing occurrences in all of Scripture. Jonah, even in spite of himself, God sends Jonah to preach a message of repentance. And the entire city, the wicked city, the pagan city of Nineveh, repents of their sin and they fast for God. They humble themselves and they repent. What an amazing thing. There are personal fasts where you fast just you. This is the kind of fast that Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 6, where he gives us commands and guidelines that we should not fast in order to be noticed by others. In Luke chapter 18, there was a Pharisee that prided himself on how often he fasted. He ridiculed the tax collector. He said, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this man, this ungodly tax collector here. Look at all the great things that I've done. And look, I fast twice a week. Jesus condemns such arrogance. So there's personal fasting. There's also corporate or congregational or church fasting. In Acts chapter 13, in New Testament times, the church at Antioch fasted and prayed before they sent Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. We also have national fasts. All throughout the Bible, the nation of Israel would be called to fast. Some king would call them to fast, or some prophet would call them to fast, and they would fast together when they returned to the Lord. Ezra is an example of this. Ezra, as uh, they are given permission by the Persian king to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild, Ezra fasts and prays for protection because it would have been a very long journey, and it would have been very, very dangerous. And so he fasts and prays. They all fast, the entire nation, for that trip. Believe it or not, America has had days of fasts. All the way from the Continental Congress and the founding of this great nation, and even up to Abraham Lincoln's time in the time of the Civil War. I want to read you a proclamation of, of fasting. And I want, I, want, I want to read, and I, want, I know it's going to, there's a lot that you're going to gloss over, but I just want you to listen. This is not all Abraham Lincoln. This was the Senate at the time, 
Um, Senator James Harlan of Iowa, whose daughter later married President Lincoln's son Robert, introduced this resolution in the Senate. The Senate supported it. Abraham Lincoln got on board as well. But I want you just to listen to what our government put forward for the people of this land. This is during the time of the Civil War. There was great grief. By the President of the United States, a proclamation. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of God Almighty in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the President to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation. And whereas it is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime, the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. And insomuch as we know that, by His divine law, nations like individuals are subjected to punishments and chastisements in this world, may we not justly fear that the awful calamity of civil war, which now desolates the land, may be but a punishment inflicted upon us for our own presumptuous sins to the needful end of our national reform as a whole people. In other words, saying this is a judgment upon us. We need to repent and turn again to the Lord. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven. We have been preserved these many years in peace and prosperity. We have grown in numbers, wealth, and power as no other nation has ever grown. But we have forgotten God. We have forgotten the gracious hand which preserved us in peace and multiplied and enriched and strengthened us. And we have vainly imagined in the deceitfulness of our hearts that all these blessings were produced by some superior wisdom and virtue of our own. Intoxicated with unbroken success, we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace. Too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then, we don't use that word behooves, I think most of you know what it means, but it behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and forgiveness. Now therefore, in compliance with the request and fully concurring in the views of the Senate, I do by this proclamation designate and set apart Thursday the 30th day of April 1863 as a day of national humiliation, that, not embarrassment, but humbling, a day of national humiliation, fasting, and prayer. And I do hereby request all the people to abstain on that day from their ordinary secular pursuits and to unite at their several places of public worship and their respective homes in keeping the day holy to the Lord and devoted to the humble discharge of the religious duties proper to that solemn occasion. Almost done. All this being done in sincerity and truth, let us then rest humbly in the hope authorized by the divine teachings that the united cry of the nation will be heard on high and answered with blessings, no less than the pardon of our national sins and the restoration of our now divided and suffering country to its former happy condition of unity and peace. That's a sermon. That's some preaching. There's a lot of theology in there. But there was no aversion. There was no, oh, this is a weird thing. This is our government calling our nation to fasting and prayer and to humble themselves and to go to church. 
He said, quit what you're doing. Quit the secular pursuits and get to a church and worship and pray and fast and seek the Lord. We're in the middle of a war. Let me give you some reasons for fasting. I'll give you five or six of these. This is important to realize because we think of the what of fasting. What do you do? Well, you don't eat. Well, that's what prevents it from being Christian fasting. We need the why. Why am I fasting? What is the purpose? And there are many, many reasons that you find in Scripture. Let me give you six. One, to deepen our repentance and our faith. Fasting is a way to humble ourselves before God. It will help us with temptation and to discipline our bodies and to deny ourselves. It will help us to trust God to meet our needs in faith. Fasting helps us to express grief. You see this commonly in the Bible. Maybe we should try this every now and then rather than complaining on Facebook. King David did this in Psalm 35. He said, Yet when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer was genuine. I went about grieving as if for my friend or brother. I was bowed down with grief like one mourning a mother. Fasting helps us strengthen our prayer. Fasting is not a hunger strike that we go on trying to move God. It's, it's hunger that helps us forsake ourselves for the moment and focus more on God and His kingdom. Fasting helps give us guidance. Fasting can focus our mind in wisdom and prayer to be led by God. Paul and Barnabas did this. They, uh, they fasted and they prayed before they appointed elders in each town. And so it helped them to pray. It, it helped it to uh, give them guidance. Let me ask you, do you have a big decision going on in your life? Are you worried about something? Is, is something going on in your family? Have you tried fasting? I'm not saying it's a magic pill, but what I'm saying is it will help you pray. Because what it does is it, it, it takes you out of the normal and it puts you in, in a focus where you're focused on prayer to God and you're seeking His leadership. And God may give you guidance. Fasting helps us to serve others. Isaiah 58, Israel was rebuked for legalistic, legalistic and selfish fasting and their treatment of others. And instead, God commands them to love others and even share their food. Sometimes fasting creates new time for us. We feel like we don't have a lot of time. You know what? We, we typically devote a lot of time to that whole eating thing. Maybe every now and then we need to take a break from that and we need to create some new time for spiritual purposes. Maybe God will allow us to do more in that time than we could ever imagine. And so fasting helps us to serve others. With the time we would have spent on ourselves, maybe we can spend that time praying and serving others. Maybe we can spend that time going and helping somebody out. All of you forget to eat meals. Fasting is not uncommon for you. This was a big ding, ding, ding moment for me. How many times do you forget to eat? How many times do you miss a meal? Because you're working? Or because you're participating in a hobby? Or because you're having fun? Or because something's not available? Whatever the reason is, we are all familiar with putting the food away for a little bit when we have something that's more desirable. So, finally, final reason for fasting, and in my view the biggest, is it creates in us a longing for God and a worship of God. Anna, as we talked about, is a great example of someone who fasted 
in worship of God and in longing for Him for years, for decades, her whole life. She prayed and fasted continually in this temple. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19 tells us that some people's God is their belly. That's been me at times. It may not have been my appetite for food, but it's some other appetite that I have. And Philippians 3 says that some people, their God is their belly. When we fast, when Christians fast, we are saying we are falling in line with the fact that God is our God. We are reminding ourselves that He is who we need. He is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Let me give you some helps for fasting. These are all P words. We'll go real quick. Purpose. Spiritual purpose. You've got to have those purposes. If you don't have purpose, you'll be in trouble. The Pharisee of Luke 18, as I mentioned, bragged about his fasting, but it was worthless. He thought fasting was some kind of brownie points with God. Fasting doesn't get us any brownie points with God. If we're Christians, God already accepts us. Amen? If, if we're Christians, there's nothing left that we need to do. Jesus Christ has bled and died to set us free, and we are adopted into the family of God. We don't have to earn His favor anymore. We are chronic. We are chronic in our hearts and in our minds with thinking God is mad at us, with thinking God hates us, with thinking our salvation is not secure, with thinking that He is not as fatherly now as He has always been. The cross is secure and our salvation is secure. And it always will be. And it is out of that freedom that we fast. We do not fast to earn. We fast because He has earned us the opportunity. And so we've got to have the purpose. We've got to have a purpose in mind. Why am I doing this? Am I, am I fasting for a loved one? Am I fasting for a wayward person in my family that, that is sinning? Am I fasting for our nation? Plan. You've got to have a plan. Without a plan, you'll grit your teeth, and you'll only think about being hungry, and you'll never want to do it again. It's just what will happen. You've got to have a plan, whether that's, I'm going to pray every hour um, for five or ten minutes, or when I get hungry, I'm going to do this, but you've got to have a plan. And so we want to help, we want to develop that planning for fasting. Third is pray. Prayer and fasting go together. Fasting sometimes helps you pray more intensely, but you must have prayer in fasting, or fasting will not be Christian and fasting will not be successful. They go together. And so you have to have prayer. And finally, promise. Fasting is not a way for us to manipulate God. Fasting is less about us moving God and more about God moving us. And so the question that we need to focus on is Am I ready to be changed? Do I want to participate in some religious ritual or do I want to be changed? Of course, that should be the desire of every Christian heart and mind. And so, I'm going to tell you this. Don't fast. Don't fast if you're not ready for God to change you, for God to open your eyes, to deepen your repentance, to show you your, your need, your neediness. To do things in you. Nevertheless, there is a promise. In Matthew chapter 6, I want you to listen. In fact, you, you can turn there. I want, you, I want you to read this. I want you to read this with your own eyes. Now here's my question. I, I want to ask you this. 
if God gives us a promise, if Jesus gave us a promise, his disciples a promise, why are we ignoring it and the means by which that promise is accomplished? Here's what I mean. Let's read. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, what? Will reward you. A promise that I never saw in the Bible until this week. I read that, I've read that over and over and over again, but it never clicked in my mind. That's a promise from our good God. They're all over the Scripture. What is it there? It says, When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, brothers and sisters, if we try this fasting thing, we pursue God, and we pray. God's going to reward us. He's going to answer those spiritual purposes that we're going for. He's going to answer those if we're trusting Him in the ways that He wants us to do this thing. You know, uh, this Saturday, uh, we're going to have a fast as a church. Uh, our goal, uh, this is voluntary. You don't have to participate unless you want to. I'm hoping that many people would want to participate in some way, even if you're not on board with the, the fasting yet. I don't know why you wouldn't, but you can at least pray. But our goal is to have a day of fasting for whoever would like to participate. And again, there's a spectrum. If you want to fast for a meal, that's fine. If you want to put something else aside, that's fine. But our goal is to fast for a day. And part, in part, it's because the next day we're going to feast. That's our Thanksgiving feast. I think it's good and right that we do both. Uh, and so our goal is to have a day of fasting, but also 12 hours of continuous prayer from 8 in the morning to 8 in the evening. We've got sign-up sheets on this side of the church. If you would like to sign up for a slot, that way we can have our church just praying continuously, that would be a great thing. We're also going to have a, a service here, a prayer service, a prayer meeting, uh, Saturday at 11 a.m. right here. It's going to be a real laid-back thing. We're going to get together, we're going to sing a few songs, and we're going to break in groups, and we're going to pray. And what are we going to pray for? What's our purpose? We're going to pray for our two deacons that are going to Cuba, to a dangerous country, that they will have effectiveness in training a pastor who's trying to reach a nation that's been locked off. We're going to pray for Union County, for these kids that need to be fostered and adopted. We're going to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. We're going to pray for our mentoring ministry. We're going to pray for a host of things, and we're going to seek God. We might, we might have a time where we're praying prayers of repentance. We're going to pray and seek God's face. And so I, I welcome you to participate in this. I hope you will. If you have more questions, uh, this week we're going to be sending out more notifications, uh, more resources. Uh, things maybe even to help you uh, pray during that day if you want to commit to that. And so please be mindful of that. I want to, I want to close with a story from David. Uh, this story has always stuck out to me. It's when uh, King David, actually uh, here it's in, uh, it's in 1 Chronicles. 
King David uh, sins. And it's a sin that we're not really familiar with. We're familiar with Bathsheba and some of his other things, but, but this one we're not really familiar with. He actually uh, takes a census. Um, and, and Chronicles says that actually Satan incited him to sin. Uh, and then another passage says that God um, tested him. And so it's kind of interesting to put the theology of those two together to realize that Satan was kind of having a Job-like moment with with David. He was testing, and David failed this test. And so for whatever reasons, pride or to see if he had a big enough military, he took a census of all of the the people in the area. And God found this thing very, very um, sinful. And he comes to David, and he says, David, you have three choices. You can either have famine in the land for three years, or for three months, your enemies can persecute you. Or for three days, I can punish you. And he says, don't let me go into the hand of men. I'd rather have God. He's merciful. And so he picks the three days. And so God actually sends a, a pestilence through the land as punishment for this, this great sin. And 70,000 people are, are killed. And God sends the angel of the Lord... Uh, upon Jerusalem to destroy it. But God stops him. And he stops him at the threshing floor of a guy named Ornan, the Jebusite. And God sends David out there. And he says, David, I'm going to relent. But I want you to worship me and I want you to set up an altar. And so listen to what David says as he approaches this place. As David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the side of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at full price, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for grain offering. I give it all. So Ornan is ready to, he says, no, no, you don't have to pay me. I'm going to give you everything. Notice what David says. But King David said to Ornan, verse 24, No, I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord, take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold, built an altar for the Lord, the Lord answered him and relented, and the angel put, the sheet, put his sword back in his sheath. Now, you may not think, you may think that's a weird story and there's not anything important there. What's important is that it reveals to me what David's heart is. You know, as our musicians come, I, I, want, to, I want to draw your attention to what he says nor offering, nor awful burnt, offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. What does he mean by that? You know, I'm, I'm very thankful, as you are, um, for the freedom we have in this country. Our veterans, our, our military have fought to preserve us this freedom. God has given us a lot of grace over the years to have this freedom. We, we worship God with relative ease, do we not? We don't have to go through some of the things that everybody else does. I'm so, so thankful for that. 
But regardless of where you are on fasting right now, I want to ask you this. Is your worship easy? Are you offering to God, am I offering to God, things that cost us nothing in this land of the free and the home of the brave? David was unwilling that such a thing would be said of him. Not because of him, but because of who God is. Our worship shouldn't be cheap. And I don't mean financial. We have nothing to give to God. But we should offer what we have because of how wonderful He is. And that's what David's heart is. And so my, my final plea for you with this whole sermon, I know it's kind of different, but I, I'm hoping that you'll start to see that you, know, you need to take a step forward in some ways. Maybe even apart from fasting, maybe you're holding back and just doing what's easy. You're barely getting to church. And the rest of your week is just, I'm going to do whatever the world's got me doing, whatever my job's got me doing. I'm just going to be as bland as possible and vanilla as possible related to my family. I'm not going to step out and do anything that's risky for the Lord. And you know what? That's just not how we're supposed to be. It's not how King David was. Would you offer him what cost you nothing? It's time to take your discipleship to another level. Trust him and follow him. And if you're in the, the room today and you don't know Jesus Christ, let me tell you something. What he did wasn't cheap for you. He offered himself so that you could have salvation. Will you come to him today, ask for forgiveness, and make him your Savior and Lord? Let's stand and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. It's constantly leading us. Constantly directing us. Father, I'm thankful for what Jesus did in that desert. When for 40 days and 40 nights, He fasted and sought strength from You and won the victory. And Father, we know today, we are worshiping today because You have won the victory in our lives. And we thank You for that. And as we sing today, as we worship you, I pray if there's someone here today, God, that is not saved, they don't know you, they don't have a relationship with you, that you would give them the victory in your son Jesus. And for those of us, God, maybe there's some in this room today, God, maybe this is the message they've needed to hear. And they've known it for a while but couldn't put their finger on it. That the problem is prayer. That the problem is they've been coasting. And now they see that they've got to draw near to you. And occasionally, maybe they need to put away the food, put away all the other things that are distracting them, and draw near to the God who saves and the God who sanctifies. Help us to worship you and you alone. And help our worship 
to not cost us nothing. In Jesus' name, amen.